1: In the 60s and into the 70s, there was an explosion in the British pop music business as the Beatles broke up and bands such as the Rolling Stones, The Who, Led Zeppelin and many others rose to prominence. It was the start of a cultural revolution that continued over the next few decades. Live music audiences got more demanding and wanted to see concerts that were dramatic and spectacular. This is the story of how, as the music industry evolved, artists and bands took to the road to tour the UK, Europe and America to satisfy those demands, as told by some of the people that made it happen. The worlds of theatre and television collided, and in the vanguard was a small group of people in a London company that helped pioneer rock and roll lighting and visual production. Welcome to your very own Backstage Pass.
0: At the end of the last episode, we found out what some of the ESP crew were up to now. Let's catch up with the rest of them in this, our final episode of Backstage Pass. After he worked for ESP Lighting, Simon Woodruff joined Electrosound in partnership with Ricky Farr, who was eventually to buy ESP Lighting.
2: We got the the job to do uh, the sound and the lighting for a Rod Stewart show, and that was really my big break because i I had driven the Richmond Theatre van years ago and I knew where to go and get drapes, where to go and get rostrums, where the scenery got made and all these things. And Rod Stewart wanted to have a big stage set. And I remember going to a meeting with him and Billy Gaff on the double bend of the King New King's Road, and him saying, oh, yeah, I want a big white stage with white curtains and all of this. Not very good Rod Stewart voice, that. And I said, oh, I'll get that together. And I remember going to a dinner party a few weeks later, and somebody said, what do you do for a living? And I said, I'm a stage designer. We took that show out, and it was, I was really, really proud of it. It was a big, big, white rock and roll stage set. First one I'd ever seen, really, apart from the Pink Floyd and in fact, it's where my brother Patrick got his big break because they fired the lighting designer and we had to redo all the lighting for that show. And he got to be Rod Stewart's lighting designer and went off around the world with Rod and Billy Gaff and And his story went on from there.
3: I was up a ladder focusing a light when my brother climbed up behind me and he said, they've got rid of Pete, they need another, they need a new guy. I've told them you're going to do it. And I was, no, I can't do that. I'm too nervous. I really was like that. And he was forceful, my brother. He said, you have to do it. And I said yes. And I guess he'd sold them on the fact that I, I knew how to run lighting. And, I, and that was it. And that tour took me around the world twice, 1977, 1979. And it was just thrilling. So I was 23 years old. And all my Travelling, although I'd, I'd been brought up all over the world with my father in the army, my real travelling had just been you know, to Europe a few times for holidays. And suddenly there I was flying to Australia. First class, I seem to remember, for some reason. I think I was travelling with the tour manager in here. But travelling to Sydney and Australia and Tokyo and Japan and going to America for the first time, li- uh, you know, arriving in Los Angeles at five o'clock on a beautiful evening, thinking, God, this was some sort of fantasy and staying in nice hotels, staying after staying in these kind of seedy, flea-bitten hotels with the heavy metal kids. There I was with all this glamour and excitement and working with one of the most famous pop stars on, on the planet at that time. But there I lived in LA and I toured with ABBA, with Donna Summer, with earth, wind and fire. So I was really building up a, a sort of reputation as a touring lighting designer. Remember, in those days, it was sort of pre-computery, uh, real computer board. So if you, if, even if you were successful, you had to go on the road for the whole three months or six months at that point I started building up a um, kind of clientele who would would allow me to design a show and put it out on the road and I worked with the Rolling Stones for the first time in 1982 was a, a big break but after that the Stones sort of went into a hiatus for seven years but Mick Jagger had a solo career so he got in touch and I started working with him Japan, Indonesia, Australia we did and solo tours and I got to know him quite well and we sort of became friends so it meant that by 1989 when the band reformed again I was well placed to, to, to be the person who would go out and be not just the lighting designer but the sort of creative director for the way their shows worked and I've done that ever since so I'm, I'm now proudly the, um, the longest serving um, employee of the Rolling Stones I'm proud of that
4: Well I
0: come home baby been working all night long,
5: but put my daughter on my knee,
4: and she said, Daddy,
6: what's wrong?
5: She whispered in my ear, so sweet, you know what she said, she said, who?
0: Let's break off in Patrick's story and go back to his brother Simon and find out what direction he went in after ESP Lighting. I had a design company called S2 in Wapping and we did lots and
2: lots of rock shows and then the new thing after that was in shows for industry, you know, using the rock and roll technology and I did that, I can't remember, for 10 years or so. And then I left that, went on to, um, really, there were films starting to be made of big rock shows, Billy Joel in Russia, Elton John in, with, with Augusta in Australia, for late-night television and I became a distributor of those films and went to all the film festivals around the world and sold those to TV stations. And me and a guy called Kevin Hall, he's a scaffold man, he used to put up scaffold stages for outdoor shows in America and we started that business and I did that for several years and then got out of that and then had another period in the wilderness and eventually um, with my knowledge I suppose of show business and building stages and all of that opened a restaurant called Yo Sushi which went on to become a hundred restaurants and became a dragon on the dragon's den and I started a hotel chain called Yotel but it was all you know you could see the process John Brown, I never said this to him, was the was really my first influence as a businessman. I was fascinated when he got jobs in and what he had to do to do that, and I understood simply how you had to get a job in, charge people money, and that was business. But I was also very interested in the creative side, and I married those two things. and I suppose that's been the ribbon that's followed me all the way through my life is is business and creativity, and that's ESP is where I first learned it, and it went on to. Very, very lucky man I was to, to do lots of, lots of big and interesting things still, still at
0: it today. When we last heard from Patrick Woodruff, he told us how his client list included many of the biggest names in the music business. But even bigger things were to come.
3: You know, after I started working with the Rolling Stones in 89, I was working with a lot of the bands like Tina Turner and Simon and Garfunkel and a list of those, Bob Dylan, a list of those people of that age. But I sort of thought, I thought that I saw the writing on the wall, that all these people were too old. <laughs> you know, the Rolling Stones at that point were 50 years old. And I thought, well, that's not going to last. So I deliberately started looking for things that weren't necessarily rock related other performance things and at, at that time remember anybody who had been a lighting designer with these big moving light systems suddenly became quite precious assets for other businesses who started using moving lights like theater like uh, dance um, even opera and I started to really build up a, a, a explore all these different genres of performance and started doing shows like you know the English National Ballet or Michael Flatley's dance shows and I started to doing, um, you know, some film and television and uh, eventually the sort of payoff of all of that was that I, I did like the Olympic Games in 2012 <laughs> I had built up a small practice. My partner is a man called Adam Bassett, who was my unpaid intern at the Millennium Dome show, uh, the turn of the century, and went on to become my assistant and then my associate and now absolutely my partner, even Stevens, and we have a small um, design group together. Uh, We knew the Olympic Games was going to happen in London and we knew they were going to have big opening and closing ceremonies and I knew that I had a pretty good shot at getting the job, because uh, I knew they would want to use an English lighting designer, because lots of English lighting designers, so of course they would want to use an English one. And I had had uh, experience working in large venues, stadiums and and uh, arenas and doing filming for these sort of things so i knew i was in with a good shot but i wasn't still wasn't sure whether i wanted to do it <laughs> because um i'd done the millennium dome and seen all that kind of government interference thing and how difficult it was and how and also this was going to be a lot of work and uh, we didn't know what the budget was we didn't even know who the the owner uh, who the director of the shows would be but my friend mark fisher long time friend and colleague was one of the kind of executive producers by this time i think he'd had he'd had his cancer he he, he had had been diagnosed with cancer. So he didn't take on the big role of designing it, but he was a great advisor. And he called me one day and he said, look, they're going to call you tomorrow and offer you the job. And I said, I'm not sure even if I want to do it. And I listed all those things that I had said about, you know, not knowing who's going to do it and it was going to be too bureaucratic and... It wouldn't be anything, We wouldn't have anything like the budget that China had. And in his very dry way, Mark said, well, he said, all those things are true, of course, Patrick, but all you have to ask yourself is on July the 17th, 2012, whatever it was, you want to be in the control booth at the Olympic Stadium, making the lighting for the opening of the 2012 Olympic Games, or whether you want to be at home watching it on the television. And I took a deep breath. I said, of course, you're right crazy to turn it down so I took it on it was a big challenge one of the most difficult thing I'd done for all the reasons that I had just listed money the weather the press the complications of it the politics but it was also one of the most inspiring um, periods of my life professionally you know it was a wonderful thing to do had a fantastic team of people and we lucked out the the show was an enormous success a a triumph um uh, not least of all because Danny Boyle came up with this great idea and it was new and it was different and, and um, our part of it looked good and it was a big success and, and uh, nerve-wracking terrifying at times you know and I've done loads of big shows but this one was different you know the stakes appeared to be very high and the relief when it was over was the, the most overriding emotion and after that a slow sense of pride that what we had all achieved I still think of that
0: super true bad beams are gonna blind me
7: but I won't feel like I
5: always do Cause somewhere in the crowd there's you.
0: From his early days looking after the super trooper Spots, Jeremy Tom's career really
8: took off too. The sort of the timeline from ESP and lighting was into Revelation Staging, which was a, a, a company we designed and built tensile structures to be used as stages. Uh, and pneumatic stages. So our first client was the Stones. Uh, We did a pneumatic roof for Paul McCartney and myself and uh, my partner, Bill Harkin, did a lot of the design on that. We took that on the road and toured structures for three years. When that company went down, I then started working with Simon Woodruff, who I'd met during the ESP years. And he was working for Ricky Farr running the lighting side, and that was right at the beginning of when the lighting companies would offer bands a backdrop and a drum riser free if they used that company's lights. So they became a sort of free offer for the lighting companies. I was brought in to design and build or look after the building of backdrops and drum risers. Those got more complicated as time went on. Uh, Simon and I started a company called Plumline, which we ran for almost 10 years, doing stage sets for touring rock and roll shows. And there were probably three or four companies worldwide who did that. So we worked worldwide. We worked for big bands. We did big shows. And that also was a huge learning curve. From there, when that one ended, I moved to the States, where I still am did a certain amount of music uh, business design, but a lot more of big, rather odd trade shows, things that were fairly non-standard, things that uh, the the knowledge of having done rock and roll shows worked well for some industrial shows. And we had, during the Plumline years, we'd done a certain number of things like Ford car launches and Things like that. So it was fairly familiar. So I I sort of took the expertise from rock and roll and moved it into the trade show world. Did that for a few years. And when at, at 9 11 over here, when the entire trade show business literally stopped because nobody was willing to put their people onto planes to fly them all over the place to go see industrial shows. So that one stopped, and I started designing one off custom structures. Which is essentially what I still do now. Basically, it's large and weird shit. That's what a client wants, and that's how my phone rings with those kind of requests. So it's everything from ski jumps for Olympic trials, built for three-day events in baseball stadiums. You know, complete with making two foot of snow on top of a hundred and seventy foot, or you know, whatever that is, sixty meter high structure to, you know, building temporary bridges, or uh, I've been designing uh, temporary pop-up hospitals during the COVID time. So yes, it's very different from the ESP years, Um, but there is absolutely a tie-in to the philosophy and the practice of building structures uh, with the same sort of attitude as you would putting out a rock and roll tour, which is, you know, and quite frankly, rock and roll has been the best apprenticeship ever.
0: Frank Andrews went on to set up a recording studio at Ridge Farm near Dorking in Surrey, which he ran for 25 years and now runs as a wedding and conference centre. Riley O'Connor had arrived in the UK on what he described as the hippie trail and worked with ESP Lighting on many tours and big shows before returning to Canada and continuing to work in music production with his brother-in-law
9: it was pretty amazing how little of the actual business of uh, the music business i understood i never even made the equation of how do people get into the buildings or anything like it's just you know to us it was just you know putting the lights up and making sure the show ran on time i didn't give a damn about you know the promoter's concerns or audiences or anything like that just making sure that the place was safe to work under And then started working in the promoting business in Vancouver and to learning the business and then becoming fascinated about uh, promoting. Built up the career as a promoter and built the company up in Vancouver. And then we became the number one promoter in the city and then the number one promoter in the west of Canada. And then my job evolved to coming to, we had a partnership with uh, two of the leading promoters in Canada at the time. And then I came to Toronto and worked for Michael Cole and, you know, learned the business. And he taught me the mechanics of, the art of a deal, built my career up, and so now I'm the chairman of Live Nation Canada. After
0: ESP Lighting, Robin Elias's career took a slightly different direction, and he set up his own company, Absolute Rigging. Robin is now the chairman of the National Rigging Advisory Group in the UK, and has worked on a number of large-scale, high-profile projects, from suspending full-sized aircraft in exhibition and museum settings to an enormous mechanised spider as part of Liverpool's City of Culture celebrations. Like Patrick, Robin was also involved in the London Olympic Games of 2012.
10: the contract to do some cultural events in London just prior to the Games, as well as the rigging of the Games themselves. I was tasked with um, putting in the rigging infrastructure on eight iconic buildings around London to allow an American choreographer to bring her troupe of aerial artists over, and they performed, under my supervision, death-defying stunts on these buildings. So that was a huge challenge in many, many ways, getting permissions and what have you, being only one of them. I remember vividly that this culminated in a show on the London Eye. So the requirement was that 32 artists had to perform on the London Eye. Each would be on one of the 32 riverside spokes, and each would need to be attached to the spoke in such a way that they could travel along it or put the brakes on. And it should all be hands-free so that they could perform their choreographed aerial ballet. So I had to invent the device and the system to allow them to do that, times 32. Then I had to supervise, win their confidence, then supervise putting them on as the wheel turned from the axle on the riverside, um, a, a little crow's nest. They performed their aerial ballet over three or four rotations of the wheel, and then... They all had to return to the centre there where I would unclip them and see them safely down back through the axle um, to safety. And so you can imagine 200 feet above the river uh, at night with all the lighting. If you look down, the river would be travelling fairly rapidly from right to left underneath. It was windy, there were birds, there were bats... Um, at the top of the... These um, teeth travelled to the top of the wheel. They'd be for some 400 feet above the ground, 200 feet above me. And um, you can, as you can imagine, the, the timing had to be impeccable so that I, I could both put them on in a controlled, regimented fashion, checking their harness and devices, clipping them on, adjusting the device, uh, looking them in the eye, making sure they were ready for it, giving them a kiss goodbye and then waving goodbye as they disappeared to my right due to the rotation of the wheel. The next seven seconds was putting the next one on, etc, etc, etc. 32 times in a row, on the reverse for taking them all off. I think that's probably the, the rigging associated job gives me the most satisfaction, pleasure, and the biggest buzz. That's what rigging's all about in my book.
0: Special visit kept busy too after ESP was bought out
6: I continued to work for the new company which was called uh, TFA it was been acquired by Ricky Farr so I stayed on and I did my last tour in 1978 and then I worked with Brian Croft in the office in Marshall C. Road. There was a big shake-up in the American office and there was a sort of power struggle going on there and it left um, the position of head of the lighting division open in the States and Brian and Ricky Ricky Forrest said, well, why don't you go over there for um, six months and just kind of take charge and uh, see if we can get things going again. So in September of 1980, I went over there for six months and uh, I've now been here for 40 odd years. So I did that from 1980 to 1983. At that time, Ricky suggested to me that I start my own company, which would be a company that imported uh, British technology. So at that time, the Brits were just way ahead in all the areas of uh, putting tours together, the the, the new technology that was emerging. So I started a company which uh, used my initials, TMB, in 1983 in Los Angeles of as being an importer. And that company grew. And in 1985, I hooked up with my uh, friend Colin Waters, whom I'd met on the Blue Oyster. Culture, And he became my partner. And we built that company over the years. At one point, we had, until the recession hit in 20, 2009, we had over 100 employees. And it was going really well. But six or seven years ago, I sold my interest in that company to Colin, who's still running it. And I effectively retired and so since then I've been working as a freelance writer writing about the lighting industry and um, also uh, pursuing my interests in the fly fishing industry.
0: Nick Dornan on the other hand moved to the other side of the world.
6: I was in the uh, music business for
7: about 19 years and i uh, 1988. Uh, I became uh, quite, quite ill for a bit and um, my wife and I decided we needed a change. And so we um, went back to Western Australia, where I'd uh, been before, and bought a farm and farmed sheep for um, about 25 years. But, uh, you know, that's uh, very simplistic. I also got very involved in the community and the environment and uh, became mayor of uh, the Augusta Margaret River Shire. And uh, I did that for three and a half years. I'm a director of uh, the uh, Bendigo Bank in Augusta Margaret River and uh, I'm also um a secretary and sometimes uh, captain of the Augusta Golf Club. I've even won a a green jacket at the Augusta Masters, the one in Western Australia, not in America, unfortunately. And um, I've also been president of the um, Margaret River Tennis Club and uh, many other things.
0: You couldn't get much further away from rock and roll than that, could you? But what about the two founders, John Brown and Brian Croft? What did life hold for them after ESP was sold? John Brown
11: first. Well, after the sale of ESP, I had a little bit of money from the sale. So I decided that I would try and be an entrepreneur. I rather naively thought that having built one successful company, every other company that I would be involved in would also be successful. And that actually didn't prove to be the case. But I, uh, I I sort of split the money up into and made... Uh, Investments in a number of different businesses covering um, commercial vehicle accessories, which was a company called Trucker's Paradise very well when CB Radio arrived in the UK. A Mexican restaurant in Covent Garden, Cafe Pacifico, which was equally very successful for a number of years. A chocolate chip cookie shop. There was a boom in chocolate chip cookies in New York. And I had some friends who thought we should try it in London. And that was a failure. And also, actually spinning out of ESP, when we were when we were at ESP, we used to obviously send people across Europe all the time. And one of our uh, crew members, a guy called Andy Harris, once came back from Amsterdam with a hologram, a 3D picture, where he'd met this American scientist who had developed this process for producing 3D pictures. And I thought, well, that's going to be exciting. Um, and I made some investments in those areas as well and went off to Amsterdam and actually met the guy. And then he and I subsequently became business partners, and then I set up another company, uh, apart from these minor investments, called Light Impressions uh, International, and he ran a company called Light Impressions in America. And that, in fact, is what I did for the next 25 years of my life. And here's Brian Croft.
4: Ricky Farr far of electrosound, uh, was very keen to acquire a lighting partner. And now he had some backing from a merchant bank. Ricky wanted me to move into his chair immediately, but John and I weren't prepared to move until all the details and legalities were finalized. The deal actually took months to conclude. We were all now part of TFA Electrosound Group. And from then on, I was the managing director of the European operation, sort of chief schmoozer and project manager. In 1982, it all blew up spectacularly when the Merchant Bank went bust. I managed to salvage my bit by getting Theatre Projects to buy us out of receivership. A couple of years later, Theatre Projects sold its rental and service side to Samuelson's so that it could concentrate on its uh, consultancy to architects. It also established the first very light distributorship. Between us, we had Springsteen in excess, The Jam, Drone Armour Training, Jackson Brown, uh, in addition to old favourites like Queen and Rod. Um, I picked up Patrick Woodruff's acts like Tina Turner and Spandau Ballet, Um, also Duran Duran, for Jerry Stickles. Samuelsons overextended themselves and they were taken over by a venture capitalist, uh, yet again, another one called Eagle Trust. I was beginning to know more about mergers and acquisitions than I did about lighting. Uh, The whole thing had been consolidated. Uh, These were good times. Theatre projects were doing major West End trade shows, and events. The Stones were back out on the road. We had the Floyd, McCartney, Genesis, all with giant worldwide tours with lots and lots of Verilites, plus hundreds of other acts, like Simply Bread. And we finally got to do David Bowie. Then in 1994, Verilite Dallas bought us out of the Samuelson Group and I was in charge of the whole shooting match in the UK and Europe. I spent a lot of time in the States and also a lot of time on aeroplanes worldwide. I survived a couple of life-threatening interventions in the old um, heart and cancer departments, and I got kicked upstairs to become the chairman until I retired on my 65th birthday in uh, 2003. I've always been lucky. In fact, my whole career and my life has been a blast. Um, Just flipping great, actually. And I loved it.
0: So that just about brings us up to date on those who were on ESP's incredible journey over just five short years. Let's leave Riley O'Connor to sum up.
9: I don't really miss the road things so much. I miss the people I worked with, and I miss the guys that uh, I was with part of those early years. I think for most people, you know, your biggest takeaways are your first learning experiences that uh, give you value in your life. And uh, so those are memories that uh, will always be with. It's it's just part of your life. And uh, those are fond memories. And uh, those were the places it's your baptism of fire. You know, you're either going to succeed in life by what you learn in those years or you're going to be a failure. And uh, I think I came out on the lucky side.
0: Well, I hope that you found it fun to have your backstage pass and join the crew to hear about the start-up and development of the London-based production company ESP Lighting, which led the way in the development of lighting and staging in the 70s, when rock and roll came of age. In the first episode, we heard some of the people that made it happen, many of whom came from theatre backgrounds, as they recall what it was like to be there with a snake in the bath and an elephant, and we joined the Osmonds for a birthday party on a plane, with candles and an impromptu brass band. Then in the second episode, we heard about being on the top of a bus with Paul McCartney as he shared his views on the breakup of the Beatles – and then about the birth of the lighting company and it working with some of the biggest bands and artists of all time, and how, at the beginning, it was all about making it up as they went along. In the next episode, we heard about the scale of the shows and how these and the tours grew and grew, the admiration that the crews had for Queen and Freddie Mercury as performers, and from the proud, longest-serving employee of the Rolling Stones and how hard it was to deal with some of the band's managements of the time. In episode four, we heard about the experience of working in the theatre and how that was beneficial when working on rock and roll shows, and how blowing up a lighting control board led to a sports car chase across London to avoid the wrath of Frank Sinatra's henchmen. And we learned how lighting equipment developed into the sophisticated rigs with a look that is familiar to concert goers today. In episode five, we heard about the Who coming to blows, how competitive the lighting and production industry became before investment bankers moved in. And then finally, at the end of that episode, and in episode six, we learned about what those long-haired, denim-clad hippies of the 70s, who featured in our story, are up to now. One thing is for sure... It was a hell of a ride, and most of us survived, although some didn't, and sadly are no longer with us, including Nigel Gibbons, Peter Price, Jim Thompson, better known by a name that is today totally politically incorrect, and Edwin Shirley, who co-founded the transport company, which had his name on the side of their trucks. It's been a real pleasure to have you join us for this series, and if you'd like to hear more or have any comments on what you've heard, then you can find us at www.pantheonpodcast.com or at Pantheon Podcasts on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. We'd love to hear from you. And in the meantime, thanks for listening and
1: I look forward to having you backstage again. Bye for now. We've come to the end of our current tour and hope you enjoyed your journey. Perhaps when you go to your next live concert or music performance, you'll see things in a new light. And spare a thought for the crew and their work that created and put the show on, such as our contributors to this series. Frank Andrews, Jimmy Barnett, John Brown, Marshall Bissett, Brian Croft, Nick Dornan, Robin Elias, Roy Lamb, Riley O'Connor, Jeremy Tom, Patrick Woodruff, Simon Woodruff, and Chris Smith, who, with Christian Swain, produced Backstage Pass. The miniseries was edited by Jerry Danielson for Pantheon Podcasts, the home for music lovers. If you enjoyed your time with us, feel free to give your backstage pass to someone who'd appreciate it. It's up to you now to keep the lights on.
5: It's NFL Draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football.